you'll remain standing and open your Bible, Psalm 131. Title of this message, The Key to a Calm and Quiet Soul. The Key to a Calm and Quiet Soul. Reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for this time in the service when having approached you in worship, we now open our ears and hearts to hear you speak. And we trust when we open the scriptures that you will cause them by your spirit to come alive to us. You know all that we bring with us in the way of burdens and needs, questions, concerns. Lord, you know all the things that are obstacles in our lives to moving on, to making progress, to getting up when we've been knocked down. Everything, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, speak truth and life into all of those buried situations. And so we sit attentive with ears and hearts open, asking that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people for your glory and our good always. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as yours today. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, masses of people live these days with with turbulent and unrested souls. I suppose that's been true in every chapter of life and every generation. but in some ways seems especially so today, maybe especially so this last year. Uh, In fact, some of us would read Psalm 23 where it says, the Lord is my shepherd who leads me beside still waters. And we would think, you know, I've lived so long with so much turbulence inside of me and so much turbulence in life around me. I, I don't even remember still waters. I don't even know what still waters really would look like. In fact, the waters have been stirred up and uh, troubled for so long, those just seem like they are the stillest it's going to get. Well, an author named Lane Cohey, I'm otherwise unfamiliar with him, but he wrote a book that speaks to this subject called The Disquieted Soul. And I'm going to read some excerpts there at at a little bit of length that just gets to the heart of this condition of our heart this morning. He says, we inhabit a world of disquieted souls, living lives of restless discontent. They're the souls who overanalyze, overworry, overperform, and overprotect. They're souls running as fast as they can, trying to escape their own unhappiness. 
perfectionistic extremes and addictive tendencies are their regular companions. Peace, stability, and harmony are not. The disquieted soul is constantly worried and dissatisfied. It is impatient, overdriven, and reckless. It moves on from one thing to the next, seeking and pursuing the one thing or person it believes will bring complete happiness. It worries about unforeseen threats and obsessively tries to control imagined circumstances. It hungrily seeks to overachieve, all the while often feeling devalued and unappreciated. It feels needless levels of misunderstanding and rejection and immerses itself in self-pity. The disquieted soul lives in a world of disillusioned extremes, seeking invented ideals this life cannot offer. It is often talented and successful by the standards of this world, but is un incapable of enjoying its own success. Chances are there's something in that scope of the description of the disquieted soul that touches most of us in here, if not today, at some point in our life. We know what our susceptibilities are, our vulnerabilities, our tendencies toward uh, any of these descriptions that would lead us to have a disquieted soul. Disquieted, of course, just mean, meaning the very opposite of a quiet one. A turbulent, disturbed, unrested soul. I read earlier at the outset of the service from John 14, 27, where Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. But many of his followers today do not have the peace that he gives. Uh, they have a whole lot of what the world gives, but they do not have the peace that he gives. And they are afraid and their hearts are troubled a whole lot of the time. In fact, for some of us, uh, once again, they troubled and uh, the absence of peace and fearful hearts have been so normalized for so long in our own hearts, we don't know that it's abnormal. We don't know that we're missing the, the very will of God for us. We don't know that we're missing the very things that Jesus uh, intended for us to possess in the way of uh, peace well, Psalm 131 uh, tells us a little something about uh, the keys to a, a, a calm and quiet soul. For those who are afraid and troubled and, and uh, lacking peace, they need their disquieted souls to be quiet, to be quieted. And Psalm 131 tells us that the key to a calm and quiet soul is a humble and contented heart. Or I might say a, a little bit more precisely that the key to a calm and quiet soul is choosing to have a humble and contented heart. So look with me, this is uh, just, a, just a couple of verses here. This is one of the shortest Psalms that there is, or that there are, but really a precious one. Uh, this, I hope for some of you, this will be one that catches your attention today 
and impacts you in a way that will bring you back to it, revisiting it from time to time when you need the word that it has. But verse one says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There are really three layers to that, I think, that David is speaking to. He doesn't, number one, regard himself more highly than he ought. His heart is not lifted up, he says. Second, he doesn't have his eyes set on worldly ambitions and desires. My eyes are not raised too high looking for things that I don't have and God doesn't intend for me to have. Looking for things to satisfy me that won't satisfy me, etc. He doesn't have his eyes set on worldly ambitions or desires. And then thirdly, he, he doesn't concern himself with things that are beyond him or out of reach or above his pay grade, you might say. He says, I don't, I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. That word marvelous uh, can also be translated too difficult. And it is translated that way, at least in the New American Standard. There may be other translations as well. But I don't, I don't occupy myself with things that are just out of reach for me. Do you realize there are certain things um, God did not equip you for? He just didn't fashion you for certain things. Can you imagine how frustrating and futile it might be if my deep desire was to play NBA basketball? <laughs> I, I, I gave that one up around age 12. <laughs> but as you know, a, a humorous and obvious an example that is, there are all kinds of ways in which we, uh, we really occupy ourselves with things that are, uh, that are beyond us, so to speak, that are just, we're not fashioned for. God hasn't made us for that, and we can, we can become uh, absolutely preoccupied with desires for things we don't have rather than gratitude for the things we do have. Of course, that's another message of its own. But he doesn't have regard himself more highly than he ought, he says. He's not, he's not proud-hearted. And David had plenty of reason to be proud, didn't he? I mean, if you just think about it in the natural, you may have, uh, remember a song lyric from many years ago that said, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And David uh, never said, spoke of himself that way, but he might have been the kind of guy that seemed like that. You know, the, the guy that was just good at everything, you know, growing up and that kind of thing. He would have been the, you know, the division one quarterback recruit, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was just, he was skilled and talented in all kinds of ways. Seemed to be good at everything he put his hands to. He was a skilled fighter, having killed uh, a lion and a bear with his sling before he killed Goliath in the same way. He was handsome. He was a skilled musician and poet. He wrote a whole lot of the Psalms. His first job in the royal court, if you will, was as a musician. You know, you don't have very often uh, that the, the route to the throne is first as the harpist. <laughs> 
You know, you might have the general who becomes the king, but usually not the harpist. But his skilled musician, of course, he became a great uh, leader and a great king of a nation. But he, so he had reasons he could have been proud. But he also had plenty of experience with being brought low. There was something in his heart, just like every other human heart, that tempted him towards pride, but he had the experience of being brought low. He had been misrepresented by other people and misunderstood, falsely accused. He had been forced along the way to seek refuge among his enemies. I don't know how that one strikes you, but have you ever had, have you ever been sort of at odds with somebody? and then have found yourself needing their favor? Maybe somebody in the workplace that just butts heads with, with somebody else in another department and you, know, you just don't like them and sparks fly and that kind of thing and then he becomes your manager. And you, you find yourself looking for the good graces from somebody you don't not haven't experienced many good graces with i mean david had to go to his enemies to seek refuge and then had to even pretend he had gone insane at one point these are humbling things right in other words for a for a proud and skilled talented accomplished guy these will these will help you be brought low at one point his own men thought of stoning him and his own son conspired against him so at times his heart had been lifted high, but he had plenty of adversity to help humble him. And he also had experience with being terribly discontent, not satisfied with what he had. And maybe the most uh, glaring example of that was when he took Bathsheba for himself, when she was the wife of another man, sent that man to the front lines to in battle to get him killed so he could have her as his wife. You talk about the, the follies and failures of discontentment. Boy, that, that, he, he took that one far afield. And in that instance, with Bathsheba, Bathsheba his, his heart was lifted up, his eyes were raised too high, and he occupied himself with things too great and marvelous for him. All three in one deal. And it cost him dearly. So he's writing from a place of knowing that experience, and you and I know the experience as well. We don't have to try hard at all. In fact, we don't have to try at all to have hearts that are proud and puffed up, lifted too high. Eyes that are discontented with the things we have and always lifted up onto things that we don't. Or occupied with things that are just not intended for us. They are beyond us, out of reach for us, not what we're fashioned for. And yet because sometimes, because other people think we ought to attain to those things, that we ought to be more like this, that, or the other, uh, we clothe ourselves with those expectations of other people and occupy ourselves with trying to be things that we are not. Destined for failure in, in that regard and holding God in contempt at the same time. Despising uh, the craftsmanship, his workmanship in us by longing 
uh, to be somebody else or something else. We know what it is to have uh, proud and discontented hearts, but, but, but David says the preface to having a calm and quiet soul is a humble and contented heart. And, and that leads to uh, verse two where he says, I, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I wanna observe two things here that you can sort of underline about this statement. And the first is that it is a choice. I said earlier that the key to a quiet, a calm and quiet soul is choosing to have a humble and contented heart. Because he says here, I have calmed and quieted my soul. There are lots of things. David would be at the top of the list of people who would give God credit for the things that he does. David had received more grace than most people, right? And he sings about it a lot. He knows about the unmerited favor of the Lord and the things that God does for him. But he says here, I have calmed and quieted my soul. He chose to do it. And you and I must choose to do the same thing. If you have a disquieted soul this morning, by soul here, by the way, I mean, as uh, the Hebrew text means, just the very, the, the innermost part of our being, um, just our deepest self. In fact, I think the NIV says, I have quieted myself. But if you and your inmost being are, are not calm and quiet, troubled, unsettled, unrested, uh, you must calm and quiet your soul. The condition of your soul and mine is not forever dependent on your circumstances. Your circumstances are not the problem. They are just what always reveals your problem. Again, your problem and mine are inside of us. And we have to calm and quiet our soul. So it's a, it's a choice. I have calmed and quieted my soul. He says, the second thing is that he, it says he calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child. There's not a whole lot of, well, there's really not any elaboration or explanation on that, but you, you connect this with uh, verse one and what he's, he, he's speaking of there of, uh, thinking of myself too high, highly, um, aspiring for things, wishing for things beyond me and so forth. Uh, we could say that's the analogy being made of what he's been weaned from, what he's weaned himself from, those desires for worldly things, those aspirations for things beyond him, uh, even his desire to be honored and, and glorified above uh, what he's really worthy of. But there's a, English Puritan minister named Matthew Henry. Some of you would be familiar with him because he's written you know, commentaries and uh, among other things, but that's probably what he's best known for online. But here's uh, some of what he said about this verse. I've just kind of pulled an excerpt. But he says, our hearts are naturally as desirous of worldly things as the babe is of the breast. And in like manner, relish them cry for them and cannot live without them. 
You and I have a desire for worldly things that's like a, a babe desiring the breast. Love them, cry for them, whine when we don't have them, relish them, cannot live without them. But he says, by the grace of God, a soul that is sanctified is weaned from those things. The child is perhaps cross and fretful while it is in the weaning and thinks itself undone when it has lost the breast. But in a day or two, it's forgotten and the fret is over. I don't know if you followed the train of thought that the, the weaning child might be a little bit ornery when, you, when, you're, when you're trying to wean the child uh, off of the breast. But then after a short time, he's weaned and he's content. And that's the picture here. After a day or two, the fret is over. And so for you and for me, weaning ourselves off of all those desires for things we don't have, for regard that we think we ought to have but, but don't have in the hearts of people, thinking we're more high, you know, higher than we ought to think of ourselves and so on. The weaning process from those things might be a little bit painful, but in a short time, the fret is over. And then uh, Matthew Henry says this, when our condition is not to our mind, we must bring our mind to our condition. That's a little bit uh, archaic language, but uh, in other words, when, when life isn't what we think it ought to be, we need to change our perspective on what we think it ought to be. Rather than fretting ourselves constantly over trying to change life and everybody around us, to get in harmony with our desires, uh, we're the ones who need an adjustment to our own reality if we're gonna live at peace. When our condition is not to our mind, we need to bring our mind to our condition. We need an adjustment in our soul. And then our souls will be weaned like a child. Well, our soul becomes unrested when life is not what you imagined it would be, uh, or what you hoped it would be, or what you think it ought to be. And that can happen because, like David, you're puffed up with pride. When your heart is lifted up, as he says, your inclination will be to think that other people are your problem. Try to... Let's slow down and meditate on, on this one a little bit. Because when you have exalted yourself in your own mind more highly than you ought to exalt yourself, when you think of yourself as uh, more than you really are and more and better than others, you're gonna think other people are the problem and you're always trying to get them to adjust to your standard. And this happens in the, in, in the church as well as it does in the world, and it happens uh, in probably many of the same ways, but, but also maybe in some uh, distinct ways, particularly in that Christian people, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit subtle in the way the enemy works this into our lives, but Christian people can get puffed up with spiritual pride. 
um, thinking we are more knowledgeable and more mature than other people. And the problem is, in the church, is all those other Christians. Right? They just don't know, and they just aren't where they ought to be. And, 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 and so people are working and laboring and praying all the time to, to fix other people. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual kind of pride that thinks other people are the problem. And that's where a, a, a heart that is lifted up will take you. The reason, the reason your soul is disquieted in that case, you think it's because of other people and they're, they're the problem. It's actually because uh, your heart is puffed up. It, it can also be, of course, because you're just discontented with what you have. I mean, that's, a, that's just one of those problems we live with all the time. That whatever we have, we want a little bit more of it or we want a different version of it or we want something instead um, or, or what have you. And then, of course, the, the other thing he touches on here is just occupying ourselves with things that are too great or too marvelous for me, things that are beyond me, out of reach for me, and so forth. As I said, there's probably a number of ways you could apply that. Uh, but one of the ways I think that that manifests is when uh, we we, other people have expectations for us of who we ought to be, even sometimes imagined expectations. We imagine other people have expectations for us that, that we can't really measure up to, but we wear ourselves out trying to. Always coming up short, always troubled by the fact that we're not quite there, we failed again. I'm not good enough, I haven't done enough, I'll never measure up. And sometimes that's in us because other people have very much sown that into our lives, right? You heard it growing up. You heard it in school from peers along the way and it just became ingrained in your thinking. Like before you were even very conscious of what happened, you already had a sense of what you were not, what ways you weren't good enough. But as I said, there are other times where we just imagine that, imagine that other people expect those things of it. Uh, but, but either way, it sets, it sets up an expectation for us to be what God doesn't intend us to be. That he hasn't fashioned us to be. And so there's this sort of striving all the time for things that are too great for us, things that are too marvelous or too difficult because it's just outside of the pale of what God intended to give us. I mean, you could even say, for example, um, there are people who God has blessed with great wealth and prosperity, right? They're just, they're, they have a Midas touch in the business world, investments and so forth, and, um, and they're just, they're blessed with the fruit of that. God's given them both the capacity to obtain it and the capacity to steward it well. 
other people, he, he has not fashioned that way. Some of you maybe have spent a lot of your life trying to attain uh, what if you did attain it, you would make a terrible mess of. I don't know if that statement just made sense. Where you're, you, you, people who, who spend their whole life trying to obtain wealth and they can't handle wealth. It would have a hold on them. They would not have a hold on it. Now that's just one, I, I, one illustration that comes to mind. I didn't particularly have that one written down here. But as an example of the kinds of things, there's all kinds of things that God has not fashioned us for. He has, he has made us for his glory. You think about a little, um, you know, a child's collection of, you know, a boy's collection of matchbox cars or a girl's collection of dolls or anybody's collection of any other things that are just there and they're, they're special for all kinds of different reasons. I really like the big tires on this one or the lightning bolt on the side of it or whatever the little intricacies are of them. God has fashioned us by his design for his glory and for the purposes he intends for us. And we can spend a lot of years adding unrest to an already unrested soul by, tr by occupying our, ourselves with things that God doesn't intend for us to have. Occupying ourselves with uh, trying to become things that God doesn't, didn't design us to become. But because we have uh, assigned more value to what other people think we ought to be rather than what God says, who God says we are, we spend our life adding unrest to an unrested soul. So what gives you a sense of value or significance? What are you searching for meaning and purpose in? Uh, where are you seeking safety and security? Well, the scriptures have answers about where all of those ought to be. That our, our identity, all of those are identity factors and our identity is in Christ alone. We are, we are his in Christ Jesus. Again, his workmanship, Ephesians 2 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he planned beforehand that we should walk in them. But if you begin to, to try to diagnose where instead am I looking for significance in life, who is it I look for? Whose applause is it that I'm playing for? Where am I searching for meaning and purpose? Where am I seeking safety and security outside of God himself and his design for me? I need to identify those things in order uh, to really choose to have a humble heart, a contented heart, 
And out of that, a calm and quiet spirit, a calm and quiet soul. And I don't know about you, um, but that, is, that strikes me as a real treasure in this day and age. That calm and quiet souls are elusive. And as I said, many of us have been um, troubled and disquieted for so long, driven, overachieving, overreaching, overcontrolling, overprotecting. All of those things have just been patterns fashioned into you by a whole variety of circumstances and they've been there for so long it only seems normal. And what, what, uh, what we're invited to is a place of having a calm and quiet soul uh, where we might experience, as Jesus said, the peace that he leaves with us, the peace that he gives with us. Um, that we would not walk in fear and in trouble. Well, let's pray together. Lord God, you know our hearts better than we do, and we ask really even in this time that you would reveal a little of what you see there. In what ways our souls are just troubled and disquieted. Lord, I know there are people here this morning who want to find a greater measure of peace and quietness in their innermost being. Lord, I pray by your spirit that you'd use this scripture and these meditations even to lead them there. That increasingly as the world gets more and more troubled and confused and disoriented. That the peace and the love and the joy of your people who walk about with calm and quiet souls would be so exceptional that people would be pointed to you by the testimony they see lived in us. Would you work that in, that we might work it out in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're gonna come now to the Lord's table where you know we are reminded and commemorate the gift that God gave us in Jesus that is the basis for Christians even to walk in humility. The reason why Christians ought not to walk any other way, why we ought not to have anything other than humble or contented hearts. Because of the great grace that is described in the opening chapters of Ephesians, we were dead in trespasses and sins and he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, seated us in heavenly places with him, because it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And that, uh, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
And therefore, because of that great grace demonstrated to us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because of that great grace, we're urged to walk in a manner worthy of that calling with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It says in Ephesians 4. And so we, we come uh, to the Lord's table partaking of this precious sacrament, um, a reminder of, of the gift of his sacrifice that gives us not only reason to be humble and contented, but gives us resources by which to attain to that through Christ in us. And so we wanna prepare our hearts for that uh, observance today. So I'll mention as um, always that our table is open to all of those who are believers in Jesus. If you have um, given your life to him, if you have made a decision to follow Christ, then his table is open to all of his people. You don't have to be a member here of, of this church, just a member of his church. Um, I'll say also that we'll have the elements distributed and uh, we'll hold them till, till the end of this response song and partake of them together at the end of the song. And we'll use that time just as a reflection of examining our hearts as we're always urged to do when we come to the table. And also just listening to what the Lord would say to us in response to this word today uh, and the message from it. Both the preaching of the word and the Lord's table are not merely something that we do, but something that God does in them. Uh, we, don't, we, we believe every time, as I say, we open the word that God is going to speak through it. And we believe when we come to the table that it is not merely a remembrance of him, but it is a communion with him in a spiritual way, in a way that's a mystery to us, and yet a very real way that we're brought into the presence of Jesus. And so we're reminded that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I'm gonna ask our elders to go ahead and come forward for the distribution of the elements. And as they come, let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for this precious gift that commemorates the indescribable gift you made to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
and not only a remembrance, but a participation in his death, communion with him. Lord, that's beyond our comprehension really, and yet we pray that you would bless these ordinary elements and set them apart for this extraordinary purpose, that we might be brought into fellowship with Jesus in these moments together, that we might encounter him in a very real way, that he might minister forgiveness, healing, comfort, wholeness, and anything else we have need of today. Lord, would you use this to bring us a little closer to a calm and quiet soul that we're in so, so in need of. We ask it in his name.